When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, guys. It's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast, You're Welcome, with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to You're Welcome with Chael Sonnen, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts at podcastone.com and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. A lot going on in basketball right now. I mean, you have the NCAA tournament that's still going strong. Final Four is coming up soon, but also a lot in the NBA. It has been a particularly wild march, and somebody I really wanted to talk with about it is Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, a longtime friend of the show. And we start out with the playoff picture talk a little bit about Paul George's free agency, because that is something that interests both of us. And then the other big element that we talk about is Ben's really interesting piece that came out this week for Sports Illustrated on the NBA's fining regime, how it works, and also where at least the MBPA part of it goes. And I thought it was really interesting. So we talked about that at the end of the show. Conversation runs a little less than an hour, and it's brought to you by BetDSI. If you use the promo code MADGM, you get a 200% member bonus first deposit. And even just for registering on BetDSI, you can get a $25 NCAA tournament bet. That's pretty awesome. And then our friends at TrueCar. TrueCar, great place to go if you are looking for a new car or if you're looking for a used car. Hope you enjoy this. As I said, it's a little bit under an hour. I really enjoyed talking with Ben, as I always do. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, as always. Danny, how's it going? It's going well. I mean, we're recording this two weeks away from the last day of the regular season, and that is a little bit daunting to me because we still have so many things that we don't know. This is a season... Yeah. So basically, the top two seeds are settled, and in the East, I feel pretty confident that we know the eight playoff teams. But other than that, you know, maybe the Blazers, after the win against Port, against the Pelicans, are pretty locked into the three. It's not all the way there, but it's close. But I, it's exciting and daunting at the same point that there are so many things that are still way up in the air. Yeah, I mean, I look at this March, and it's been a pretty bad March in terms of the basketball, just given all the teams that are tanking. But especially because of the Steph uh, Curry injury, but also because of the Kyrie injury, uh, Irving injury and because of Kawhi Leonard's uh, situation in San Antonio, I feel like I just need to collectively shake all the people who kind of tune the NBA out for that dog days of March time period to just like shake them awake and be like, look, everything that you thought you knew back in January and February about Golden State strolling to the finals and, uh, you know, it's going to be Golden State Cleveland, uh, you know, again, no matter what, both, both those teams are going to turn it on. I want to shake people out of those assumptions because I feel like 
the real takeaway from this last, last month of basketball has been that we should have a really entertaining postseason. I, to me, it's going to be much more entertaining and unpredictable, especially compared to last year's postseason, which was just so chalky and so one-sided and, and full of blowouts. I think this is going to be a, a totally different feel this year. One of the biggest differences between this year and last year was that the 2017 playoffs, part of the reason they were so chalky is that the lower-seeded teams, by and large, were the teams that got hurt. You know, that could be like, for example, the Warriors facing a bunch of unhealthy teams in the early rounds. Cleveland had some good fortune that way, too. Though Cleveland was not the number one seed, I mean, they were the prohibitive favorites, and justifiably so. I mean, Isaiah, Kyle Lowry had a turned ankle, all those sorts of things. This year, part of what makes this so interesting is that it's more balanced. I mean, the Warriors right now are missing all four of their All-Stars. They're probably going to get three of those four back before the playoffs. Kyrie Irving... My general assumption is that he's going to miss the first round. We will get a, a, a detailed update, I would assume, before the playoffs start. So, you know, those are the two number two seeds in the playoffs. And both of them have a reasonable expectation that if they were healthy, they could at, at the very least compete to make the NBA Finals. And they're less competitive without that. But the Warriors, I mean, it's it's kind of a race against time. And it's also so in flux because we don't know who they're going to face in the first round. And assuming Curry is out, which Kerr has basically said, and, you know, Steph has indicated, as he always would, that he wants to prove that expectation wrong. But who the Warriors play in the first round has a massive impact on how all of us feel about the prospect of them moving beyond that. No question. And to build on what you said about maybe some of the good teams being weakened, we can also see some of these teams in the middle of the pack actually being better than their records indicate because of injuries as well, right? Minnesota's prime example. If you get Jimmy Butler back for a first-round playoff series, you're better than a 7 or an 8 seed. At least that's what their track record before his injury suggested. I would say the same thing for the Utah Jazz. They're much better than a 7 or an 8 seed based on having Rudy Gobert back on the court, right? If San Antonio would be the prime example of this, if they were to get Kawhi Leonard back, I mean, no one would want to get them. I mean, that's the ultimate landmine uh, for a team that's, you know, looking at maybe a 2-7 or a 3-6 uh, playoff matchup. And then even New Orleans, it's tricky to kind of calibrate them. Are they better without Cousins or with Cousins? You know, certainly they've turned it on here down the stretch. But there's even an argument to be had there that, you know, maybe uh, they're not totally who you thought they were. And if you compare them to last season as well, I think the Blazers got in as the eighth seed at 41-41 and 41 last year, right? Uh, as far as I know, all eight teams in the playoff picture right now already have 41 wins, and most of them are going to be tracking into something like 45, 46 wins. So the benchmark for the teams that were smoked out of the playoffs last year is just higher this year, and they're potentially uh, facing uh, you know worse favorites because of the injury issues. Uh, you know, one other team I should add to the mix in the Eastern Conference it's the Wizards too, right? Kind of a similar situation, getting John Wall back. Now I don't think that they're the world's toughest team by any stretch of the imagination, but if you have John Wall for the full season, uh, you're better than wherever they're going to land, which is probably going to be in that, you know, six, seven range uh, in the Eastern Conference. So again, for a team like Boston, if it winds up being a two, seven matchup and Washington has John Wall back and Boston doesn't have Kyrie Irving, all of a sudden that's not your typical two, seven matchup. So these are some of the dynamics I see at play here in the first round. 
I don't know if that's going to necessarily lead to a ton of upsets, but I do think it's going to produce lots of competitive series uh, where the matchup game becomes really important in, in those situations. There is a distinct chance, it depends on how the seeding breaks out, like see a, a lower seed, and I'm not counting the 4-5 because that's a totally different thing, see a 6-7-8 seed as even the favorite in a series in both conferences. I mean, with Boston, we don't know yet not only about Kyrie Irving, but Marcus Smart, whose defense is extremely important. Boston has you know, the number one defense in the league. Part of that is Marcus Smart's versatility to just guard a lot of guys. They, have, they, like the Warriors to a point, have a bunch of guys that are out right now with injuries that should return on top of the star point guard who was, who was probably going to be out for longer than that. And that collection, Boston is a deep team. They are an exceedingly well-coached team. But that is hard to take for anybody because no NBA franchise with the structures that are in place right now is so deep that they can withstand all of those at the same time. Oh, no question. And and so I think what you're saying here, 2-7 or 3-6, like where are these potential upsets or landmines? I mean, which of the teams that I've sort of listed off do you think have the best chance to pull an upset in? You know, I don't necessarily think, you know, Golden State's going to go out like in a flame of glory, right? But which of those teams, especially in the West, do you think has the best chance to push them? I mean, I think the obvious answer is probably like the Spurs with Kawhi, right? So let's like maybe take them out. I mean, do you see any of those other teams in that mix really being able to give Golden State problems if they don't have Steph for that entire first round series? Utah could give them problems. I think Utah's going to be above the seven because they're playing well. They have a pretty soft schedule moving forward. Minnesota, if they have Jimmy Butler, brings some real challenges because they have so many offensively capable players. And Carl Anthony Towns, I mean, one of the mo- the games that's going to linger with me from this regular season is that nationally televised game. Yes, Steph Curry did not play. I mean, he still not pl- won't be playing in that series. And throughout the game, Minnesota was playing the Warriors. And it was nip and tuck, and the Warriors were shorthanded, so it was a little bit of a surprise, but Jimmy was also out. And at the end, the Warriors went to the dreaded, even though Curry wasn't there, you know, Draymond at center, defense, switch, all that kind of stuff. And Carl Anthony Towns just demolished them. And Towns is the game breaker in that sense of a player who is so good at what he does that he might be able to overcome it. And before Durant joined the Warriors, I I hadn't made a point on radio a couple times about how the Warriors were super team vulnerable. And what I meant by that was that these superlative individual talents could overcome their scheme advantages and the amazing personnel that changed with KD, obviously. But Towns is one of those guys because when he's on with his versatility as an offensive player, basically all you can do is throw a second guy at him and he's a good enough passer to get out of that. Now, there are a bunch of reasons to be terrified of Minnesota in picking them in any sort of playoff series because, I mean, hell, we just saw this with the game that they completely blew. But they have the ceiling. And I think when you're projecting an upset or thinking about an upset in a playoff series, it's more about ceiling than expected value because if the expected value is higher, then it's not really an upset. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I when I look at Minnesota, for some reason I've got you know pictures of Anthony Davis's first playoff trip uh, in my mind when I think about Carl Anthony Towns, where it's going to be like, here's this sensational postseason moment for him, showing all of his unbelievable skills, and yet the cast of characters around him kind of lets him down and they wind up going out maybe with a whimper uh, more than, you know, a real push. And again, if Butler's back 100% and he's really like a dominant force in that series, that probably changes everything. It probably makes Towns look a little bit less spectacular and it probably makes his team 
uh, look significantly steadier. But I also, you know, in addition to that kind of comparison between like Towns and then, you know, Davis's first taste of the postseason, I also can't get the the thought out of my head that these Sixers that are just surging right now, I mean, really making lots of upward momentum, getting themselves into a position where they should have, you know, home court advantage, which I think for them is huge because one, they're young, and two, their fans are amazing, and that's always a really good combination. But I can't shake the comparison between these Sixers and like the 2010 or 2011 Thunder, where they could either be that t- uh, team in 2010, which you know scared the life out of the Lakers, but wound up going down in, in the first round, but you know really announced that they were the real deal at a very young age. Or because Simmons has had that redshirt year and because Embiid is actually older than most people realize, and they could be sort of like that 2011 Thunder team where they just make a conference finals despite being young and and facing all the knocks of a team that you know really hasn't made any real noise in the postseason. So to me, those are two of the the fascinating kind of you know young guys that I've got circled with this playoffs getting approached. I mean, I've been looking for Embiid to make sort of playoff Embiid's debut ever since he put that you know career high on Julius Randle back in L.A. you know earlier in the season because you could just realize how the entire game revolved around him you know I think that's going to happen in the playoffs and the fact that he's potentially going to be in a situation where he has the better team in a first round series and he has home court advantage could really set them up well to make some serious noise here and I just draw a contrast between what Embiid is you know how this is like kind of laying out for him in the Eastern Conference maybe versus what Towns is facing where we would have to see the absolute best we've seen from Towns for you know five or six straight games for him to be able to get out of that bracket, I think, at least to get out of the first round. Like in the West and with Carl Anthony Towns, I think a lot of it is matchup dependent with Embiid. One interesting kind of data point, I'm not saying this is necessarily indicative, is that the last time the Sixers and Heat played, I think it was the last time they played a couple times recently, I thought Hassan Whiteside outplayed Joel Embiid. And that doesn't happen very often, especially not with a traditional center. Those guys have talked a lot over the years, and I wonder where that's going to go. I think of Miami as a more dangerous matchup for the Sixers because they do so much defensively to get teams out of sorts. And the Sixers, with their turnovers and young players, certainly seem like a team that could get out of sorts. You know, like that they could kind of get in their own way, that sort of thing. I mean, they're already the by far the leading turnover team in the league. And I mean, leading in terms of most, not leading in terms of best. So that could be more of a problem. The Wizards, I would say, are more talented at full strength than the Heat are, but it's not by as much, and they don't execute nearly as well. They aren't nearly as consistent. And I would say at this point, those are the two most likely. The best case scenario, even though though they've been better, especially when Oladipo's been healthy, is probably the Pacers, because the Pacers parallel a lot of things that the Sixers have in terms of inexperience. Yes, Oladipo has technically played in the playoffs before, but... Yeah, he was terrible last year in the he playoffs. Was. So, I mean, he was. You're, you're, not getting, you're, you're not getting excited about that. Yeah, and Miles My, yeah. Turner hasn't been in the playoffs. Thad hasn't been there in a while. Well, yeah. I think Turner, Turner was there for four games last year, right? I mean, they got swept out pretty well, and, and he struggled against uh, uh, Cleveland, I think, oh, was their yeah, first-round right. matchup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, your point's well taken. I mean, I- Indiana faces a lot of the same shell shock uh, atmosphere you would expect for a young team in the playoffs. I think you're right to circle Miami as, as Philadelphia's, you know, potentially their toughest matchup because – there's also the Simmons factor, and it's like if any coach is going to be able to to game plan and scheme to exploit Simmons' lack of shooting in a first-round series among the teams they could potentially face, I think Spolster would be the one that I would fear the most. I think he could really get creative and like just kind of bamboozle Simmons and force him to overthink because I think that's ultimately – 
like their X factor this season to me, like obviously Embiid to me, he's in the defensive player. The uh, year conversation, he should be considered, you know, all NBA second team center at worst. He is by far and away their most important player, but I feel like their X factor for this year's postseason because of the turnover issues, like you mentioned, and just because of like the steadiness and the way the game grinds down in the playoffs. Simmons has to make better decisions than he has at, at certain times this year. He's got to play consistently, and he's got to be able to be a scoring threat. So if I'm game planning for Philadelphia, I'm trying to take him away or limit what he can do or, or just make his life uncomfortable. And I feel like Spolstra from that group of coaches is is definitely the one who, who pops as the guy who could do that the best. They also have the best personnel. From the forward perspective, James Johnson is just so strong. I think he can do a pretty good job of, of executing the scheme. Justice Winslow, I think, could actually have a nice little breakout on Simmons' defensively and then offensively you know if he hits corner threes then that would certainly help but the other big tactical piece that the the heat have against the sixers is theoretically throwing josh richardson on jj reddick because if you take reddick out of what he wants to do a lot of the sixers offense just doesn't work as well i remember that from when reddick missed time and they tried to use marco bellinelli and the problem with you know having reddick be neutralized rather than being injured is that you lose that tactical advantage and there would certainly be challenges for miami offensively i mean i think the six Sixers defense has been such an underappreciated part of this. And, you know, Philadelphia, they're fifth this season in net rating. You know, this is not a team that is outperforming their point differential or anything like that. They are a legitimately really good team. It's just that they're unproven at this point. And generally speaking, teams that are talented and and haven't really been on the stage take a little bit of adjustment to get there. Totally. And that goes back to my first point about shaking people out of their slumber. If you told most people maybe who were taking March off, you know, back in you know January or February, like was Philly a top five team in point differential or anywhere close to that, they'd probably have guessed, no, not at all. You know, they're not ready. They're still a year away. This is their first year really making any noise. Uh, they'd still be wondering, oh, can Embiid stay healthy? And it's like what we've seen here, the evidence has shown us here to me in the last couple of months that one, Philly's done great from an availability standpoint for their stars. They've This is exceeding their best case scenario uh, to me in terms of having both Simmons, who was coming off injuries, and people forget that, and Embiid, who was coming off numerous injuries, available and playing well. I mean, this is they're, they're punching above their weight. There's no question. Uh, and then also, uh, I think we've seen it play out that way. Like, not only have these guys been healthy, but their impact has been exactly as big as it was maybe in, in limited time in previous years, Like especially with Embiid. Like, there was always those stats going around. Like, when he's on the court, they play like a 60-win team. Well, he's been on the court a lot this year, and they're pushing potentially 50 wins. Like, that's pretty impressive and it, and it tracks towards you know what the most favorable view of of this team would be and that's why we have to consider them a legitimate playoff threat this year it's not about okay you know make some noise you get your feet wet uh and see what it looks like i mean they're they're ceiling here to me and i and i wouldn't have said this two months ago i mean i think that they have a legitimate case potentially to make the eastern conference finals now are they going to do it uh maybe not but certainly we have to get rid of the assumptions that were sort of cluttering the picture from a couple months ago and and view them differently. Uh, to, to follow up on your point about J.J. Redick and, and the importance of neutralizing him, that's a big issue that he's had throughout his entire career. And, you know, your, your point about how they look different without him this year. Uh, mirrors exactly what happened to the Clippers in past postseasons where, yes, there were maybe other injuries uh, that kind of influenced things as well, but regularly teams would just sort of pick out J.J. Redick and, and, you know, sick their best defender on him and just try to take him out of the game. And the Clippers' offensive efficiency would drop precipitously when they get into the postseason. 
And like just the the way their overall offense functioned and flowed would not work as well if if Redick was being you know uh, limited in terms of his ability to get clean looks and clean shots. And so uh, there's a I basically there's a blueprint to stop what Philly's trying to do on offense. It's a, what a lot of teams did in past years against the Clippers, and you know, we'll see if if that's how it plays out again. And it's tricky too because that was that plan of limiting Redick was working when his point guard was Chris Paul, like the ultra experienced, ultra savvy floor general who's kind of seen it all and been through playoff battles before. Now you're talking about a rookie in Ben Simmons. I mean, that is their great, you know, uh, exposure, their Achilles heel to me in, in ways teams can exploit them in a postseason matchup. Uh, and we'll see if that happens or if their talent just wins out. But I think their range of possibilities is super wide, super intriguing. And in terms of like a first round storyline, I think this year's Sixers are better than any storyline we had in last year's first round by a mile. I agree with you. And another reason why I do is because this is going to be very different off season because there just aren't that many teams with space. Philadelphia is one of the only teams that has a variance, a big variance in terms of playoff potential success and a big variance in terms of what they do in the off season. So we brought up Redick. Redick signed a one-year deal, you know, got paid well for that one year. And Philadelphia, I'm sure they've been thrilled with what Redick has done this season for them. He is just like the rest of this team. He has outperformed expectations. He has been a meaningful part. Well, at this moment, they have about $25 million in space. And they could theoretically clear more by unloading whatever way they want to Jared Bayless. So one idea, the most common one that has been out there, is to concentrate that money on one guy to make, you know, to make a push for whoever that player is. And it could actually either be in in the 2018 offseason or in the 2019 one, depending on how they want to do it. Well, how they feel about that has shifted to a point with J.J. Redick doing so well because they could bring him back, but they presumably have to use some of that cap space. But that perception changes as well if he gets completely shut down again in the playoffs because Redick is getting older and the Sixers have such sky-high expectations, hopes moving on into the future that they need to think about not only how player X fits with the 2018-19 Sixers, but also how they fit on a potential 2021, you know, conference finals, NBA finals Sixers team. Yeah. Can I tell you my dream scenario for this summer for the Sixers? I mean, can you imagine their starting lineup next year being... Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, Paul George, Robert Covington, and Joel Embiid. I mean, to me, that's a team that makes the finals next year, and it could be a team that has a dynasty window because Paul George is like a little bit older than those guys, but he's still prime. It would almost remind me a little bit of like a supersized version of what Andre Iguodala, when he made his choice to kind of get himself to Golden State, where it was like, okay, I have been the number one guy in the past. It never really worked out that well. I want to find a team where I can consistently win that can utilize my strengths and skills to the best of my ability, fit into part of a bigger group. You know, for Paul George, like all the rumors have been going the other direction. It's like, I want to go be a star. I want to be the face of the Lakers and things along those nature. But to me, if you're just saying, what's a better fit for Paul George? Where can he win more? in Oklahoma City for the next five years or Philly for the next five years? I mean, first of all, if you put him onto Philly, don't they have a top two or three defense next year just right out of the gate? I mean, between him, Covington, and Embiid, and Simmons, if you want to throw them in, in terms of the interchangeability, the length, the sheer athleticism, uh, the ability to force turnovers, uh, Embiid in the back of all of it to, to you know play lockdown defense around the basket. I mean, that is a scary, scary team. Plus, you put him into an offense where, okay, maybe his shots and touches go down a little bit, but Personally, I think that would be a good thing. You know, I think there's been some fat in Paul George's shooting diet for years, and I'm not sure how well everything has worked out in Oklahoma City for him scoring-wise, but uh, it would require 
no doubt about it, some level of sacrifice on offense. But I think the payoff would be legit finalist next year and then potentially for the duration of whatever contract he wants to sign if it's a four-year deal i think that they would have you know a strong path to the finals for four straight years so that is my dream scenario and you know it's always annoying Danny, because you don't know what motivates superstars right you don't know exactly what their priorities are but to me like if we can kind of assume that maybe lebron isn't going to be swayed by all the billboards that the sixers fans are putting up like that paul george fit in philly is really really tasty and if philly could win a playoff series or two to just kind of give free agents like a paul george that assurance that they're the real deal that Embiid really is you know the best all around like traditional setter or, or physically you know size traditional setter uh in the nba and simmons really is you know this next amazing point forward in the league to me i don't know like what better opportunity would there be out there for him i mean to me they look modern stylistically if they have paul george they look elite defensively they present matchup problems all over the court they wouldn't necessarily have to sacrifice a ton of their depth i mean that could be a really really and they'd probably be the most fun team to watch in the league arguably you know to me that would be a dream scenario you don't know this because the two of us have not talked about it. I only mentioned it once on Dunked On, but I'm going to write a piece probably next week, depending on when they want it, for the Athletic Philadelphia. And this is my proposed title. They can obviously change it because we don't have control over that. Why the Sixers should prioritize Paul George and why Paul George should prioritize the Sixers. I think both sides of that are the right call. And that means, and, and yes, I am saying this and we'll say it directly. I think if I, if, if I were the general manager of the Sixers, I would rather have Paul George than LeBron James with their specific personnel. And the reason for it, I think LeBron is a better player. I picked LeBron as the best, best guy in the league like a week ago. But the reason is when Paul George is a complimentary piece and LeBron is a transformative piece. And I don't think you want to transform what the Sixers have with aging LeBron. You know, obviously, if this was 25-year-old LeBron James, he was better than Ben Simmons will ever be, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what Paul George is, is an additive. He's a great defender. He has done well before with other, including this year, with other good defenders around him. And his game offensively just fits in well, because he can take the shots that are there. If he wants the ball in his hands more, just put him on the floor when Ben Simmons isn't out there, depending on what they want to do with Markel Fultz. You know, maybe there's a little bit of stickiness there. I think that could work. And then for George, it's just everything that he really needs. It just might not be what he wants. And Paul George should be aware at this point of his eventual basketball mortality because most people aren't LeBron James and just beating the stuffing out of everybody else as they're turning 33. And George on the Sixers would age really well because they can scale down his offense if he needs to. They have enough defenders that if he becomes the second or third or even fourth best defender in their starting five, it's totally fine. So that way, if he has some slippage or when he has some slippage, they can handle it and stay almost as good, if not better, actually, than they were before. Because if we if we going to assume that Simmons and Embiid and Dario Saric, who's had a wonderful year, that those guys will get better from this point. Yeah, that's why I kind of compare it to a supersized Iguodala, where like George at this point is probably more explosive offensively than Iguodala was when he joined the Warriors. But it's the same type of idea, right? Like you're going there knowing that you're going to be a part of a collective and that as you age, you're going to get increased amounts of support to kind of make your life easier. And the one uh, thing for George is he's had two great reminders of basketball mortality. Obviously, 
his major injury in the middle of his career, I'm sure, you know, has him thinking about those types of ideas, right? And number two, he's watched Carmelo Anthony play for the last 70 games. <laughs> so, like, uh, if that doesn't convince you that you should try to make the most out of your, your late career slide or, like, put yourself in a situation where you have the support that you could need down the road, then I don't know what would. Because watching Melo just sort of be totally out of sorts with the transition from New York to Oklahoma City and really struggle not that far you know, removed from when he was 30 years old should be an eye-opening experience, or hopefully it is for Paul George. I guess you know this is just one of those situations where I agree with what you said. Both sides, it makes so much sense. If it doesn't happen, it will be so frustrating. And it's funny because I felt the same way about Paul George going to Cleveland last summer when all those trade rumors were around. They needed Paul George. Like if they really wanted to match up on paper fully healthy with Golden State, like that was the move. They had to have a Durant stopper, somebody they could put on a KD in those finals matchups. They didn't get it. And now their defense, you know, to me, just has no chance against Golden State in a potential finals matchup uh, if everybody's healthy. Uh, again, Paul George finds himself as this big X factor to potentially build the next dynasty in the Eastern Conference if he goes to uh, Philadelphia. Because it's not just about having Paul George to match up with LeBron, assuming he stays in the East, but it's also to have him as like, you know, the head to head matchup against a Gordon Hayward. I mean, you know, or, or Giannis. I mean, that's such a useful piece to have. If you're Philadelphia going forward, you know, looking at how, kind of how the chessboard's going to look over these next three to four years, uh, it makes too much sense. I mean, that is the pairing of any pairing that I want to see this summer. That's the number one pairing. Want to take a quick moment to tell you about Bet DSI. As many of you know, March Madness is well underway. We are getting close to the Final Four. That will be Saturday and Monday, of course. And especially for those of you who are NBA fans, Monday not having any NBA games, as frustrating as it is, actually makes it a great time to check out some college, have some fun, and you can use Bet DSI. It is the best place to go if you're looking for an online sports book. They are a top-rated business on review sites. They have an easy-to-use and fast-playing interface. And in that business, it is extremely important to have a reputation on paying out your winnings fast, and that is something BetDSI does. They've been in business for over 20 years, so they have built that reputation over time. And something that's really cool for people who are very into it or who are more casual is that you can bet games as they go. There are live in-game wagering options now and then throughout the tournament. And so if you think you have a better feel on where a game is going, maybe you're seeing a team for the first time and for, you know, for, for those getting into Loyola Chicago and numerous other teams, it's a great way to do that. And you can do that in-game, in-tournament, and it's a, a, a different way to engage in the experience. BetDSI also has great customer service, 24-7, 365. And if you use the promo code MADGM, you get a 200% member bonus on your first deposit. And beyond that, just for registering on BetDSI, you get a $25 NCAA tournament bet. So you can use the MADGM code to get even more, but you get that $25 NCAA tournament bet just for just for registering, which is pretty awesome. So don't sit on the sidelines this March Madness. Use the promo code MADGM, M-A-D-G-M, and start winning today. I have a hypothetical for you that I think you will enjoy. Imagine you are Paul George, but with your own preferences, and we've talked about that a little bit. If the choice were going to the Sixers, let's say money is exactly equal. The choice was going to the Sixers or going to the Lakers with LeBron coming there. Which of those two would you, Ben Golliver, as Paul George prefer? I mean, I, I think it would be wrong of us to assume he would do anything but go to the, the combination of 
uh, LeBron and the Lakers. I think that's just too overwhelming. Like if, if that dream scenario does come up, uh, I think even I, after everything I just said, would get dazzled by the possibility because, you know, you're essentially the center of the NBA universe, right? Like your, your marketability, your visibility, like how everyone perceives you is going to skyrocket if you're on the Lakers with LeBron and that's just the number one story. You know, every magazine has you on the cover heading into the season. You're the number one story that's being covered, you know, for six or seven months straight. You know, the Nike connection there, of course, would, you know, boost it up to the next level. I think it would be disingenuous of us to kind of pretend like there's a better opportunity for a guy in his situation, even if it is a better strictly only basketball uh, opportunity uh, in Philadelphia. And I think from that standpoint, we got to give the Lakers LeBron dream scenario that top billing. But I guess what I'm saying is if you're Paul George and you have to wait on LeBron's decision, right? That's really where it comes in. If LeBron says, okay, I'm going to drag my feet and take some time on this decision. And all of a sudden, like, you know, it's the end of the moratorium. And it's like, LeBron might go to LA, but you know, he's going to announce it on TV in a week. And I have a max offer available from Philadelphia right now. If I was in that situation and I was Paul George and Philadelphia saying, look, we need an answer because otherwise we're going to go chase other people, I would be very, very tempted to to just take the, the known quantity of the Sixers and realize that, you know, that's a potential contender for, say, the, the next three, four five years. I mean, that would be really hard to say no to. I hadn't really spent much time thinking about it until you brought it up, but this has all of the hallmarks of being another LeBron delay July, where because there just are not enough pieces on the board this year, that they're all just going to wait. So like you brought up the idea of the Sixers and saying, hey, we can't wait on you. The problem with why I think that's not going to happen is because the other players don't have enough leverage to demand it. So like basically what the other paths, assuming, <laughs> assuming that Durant and... Paul George and LeBron outside of that group, you know, it's, you know, you're talking like Danny Green and KCP and Avery Bradley, all, all kind of guys that are certainly interesting and that, that have a fit. But from a practical matter, I don't think any of those guys could say, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to go sign with X. And then the other big problem is since so few teams have money, I have a piece that's coming out on this. I mean, there are only like, I think it's five teams that will start the offseason with 20 million or more in space. And a couple of those teams aren't really going to be in the mix for that. So what I think is going to happen is the entire top end, which probably will bring the bottom end in with it, just because some of those players are going to want to see where this goes are just going to wait. And the problem with that is, unlike Kevin Durant, who announced, who made his decision, I think, on the third and then announced it on the fourth, LeBron can do whatever the hell he wants. If he wants to take f- five, six days, he can do that. And I have this just fear in the pit of my stomach right now that we're going to be sitting there in our hotel rooms in Las Vegas going, okay, now all this stuff is actually going to start happening. Yeah, you're right. Now, the more that I'm thinking about it, the more if you're Paul George and LeBron's like, I need a week to announce my decision. And you know Philadelphia is not going anywhere because who else are they going to spend the money on? You're probably stuck waiting for LeBron's decision. So I kind of buried this in this long feature I wrote about Instagram a month or two ago uh, for SI. But... LeBron has kind of been a trendsetter in terms of how he announces his uh, his free agency decisions. Obviously, the decision TV show, people remember that. But also with his letter with Lee Jenkins in 2014 was kind of trendsetting at the time because the Players' Tribune hadn't kind of come along quite to the same degree. And like athlete-created content or you know first-person content wasn't as big of a deal. And as I was talking to these guys, uh, the Instagram executives about how people use social media now and like how players are trying to use it as a platform, 
I kind of wonder if whether it's LeBron or another star, if this is the summer where we see a guy basically announce his decision like on a live stream, social media, whether it's like Instagram live or on his stories page, because what better way to sort of like juice up your followers and make your sponsors happy than to go direct to your fan base on social media with your announcement. So I'm just going to put this on everybody's radar. I don't know if it's going to be LeBron, although he is really, really big on social and, and he's kind of considered to be, I think, by everyone in the industry, like the number one social media guy in the NBA. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if this summer we get like live announcements from a major player on their social media channel where basically the whole world has to tune in to them talking into their cell phone uh, as like the new cutting edge way to sort of break your news. That's just one prediction I have for this coming July. And it would be hilarious if guys like Paul George are all tuning into LeBron's live stream trying to figure out where he's going to go. Absolutely possible. And if there's a way to connect it with Uninterrupted, because Maverick Carter is, and LeBron, of course, are integrally involved in that, as I understand it, then by all means, I, I, I totally could see something like that happening. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot to kind of consider with this with this offseason. And the lack of flexibility of a lot of these teams is also going to be interesting in terms of who just keeps their powder dry. Chicago is, is one of the most obvious there, but Philly as well. Like if let's say Paul George says no and LeBron and Durant say no, I would probably at this point rather just say, hey, we're going to be significant in 2019. You know, we don't know exactly who's going to be available. Jimmy Butler might be available. Clay might be available. Outside chance Kawhi Leonard is available, depending on what happens with the Spurs. And maybe you go in that way, but it's so hard to be patient when the team delivered this year. Yeah, I mean, I think Fultz's comeback, and, you know, granted, it's been one game, so, you know, we'll see. But I think that does help maybe alleviate some of the pressure to go out and swing big. Like, if you if you miss on Paul George, I think you can sell the idea of an organic building effort. Hey, guys, we didn't even have Markel Fultz last year. Now he's going to be back in the mix. He's going to be a big-time player for us. You know, remember, like, the difference between Ben Simmons, his rookie year, and then his real rookie year. Like, you could kind of sell that all over again with Fultz and say, like, you know, he was barely even a player for us. Now he's going to be a star uh, I think Philadelphia could probably get away with that to a certain degree. Also, just because I think, you know, if LeBron leaves Cleveland, then it's wide open. And so, you know, everybody starts to look different. So even if you're Philadelphia and you bring back exactly the same team, even if you just brought back Reddick, relatively speaking, if LeBron leaves the conference, you're going to look much better, right? Like you should have the inside track potentially to be in the finals or be up there with the Toronto and the Boston of the world in that conversation and without really having to do anything. So I think. Fultz's return plus LeBron's potential departure could provide the excuse or like the bandwidth Philadelphia needs to just really have a, a quiet summer and not go crazy. Uh, at the same time, I would much prefer that they you know hit a home run with Paul George and then we've got a team that we can really start saying can challenge everybody starting next year for a long time. Plenty more to discuss with Ben Golliver, but have a message from our friends at TrueCar. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip that you also might not be aware of. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they are getting a good deal before buying. 
They are also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you are ready to buy a new or a used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about a piece you wrote that I really enjoyed on fines. And the NBA has, you know, they have this regime in place, which you did a good job of explaining on it. But then the part that I didn't really know and was very intrigued by because it just was unexplained in our world was what the, at least the player association side of it does with all this money that they generate. Yeah. So I'm sure you're like me, Danny. I mean, we track the tweets every day and I've written probably dozens of stories of guys getting fined over the years. Player X yells at a referee. So they have to get fined this amount of money. And you never think, number one, how much money is really involved when you add it all up. And then number two, of course, you never think about where the money goes because the news is that they have to pay it. And it winds up painting these players in kind of a negative light, especially guys who are, quote unquote, repeat offenders, where you're a Draymond Green or you're a Matt Barnes, who's a guy I spoke to in the story, where when you're being fined over and over and over, that really winds up changing your reputation especially for the casual fans, because all they're hearing is, you know, you're getting docked this amount of money. And I was at All-Star Weekend talking to people who work for the Players Association. And, you know, it's a legitimate source of frustration for them because they're like, look, our guys, a lot of them have foundations. A lot of them are donating millions of dollars, like Draymond Green's a perfect example, donates millions of dollars to Michigan State, uh, you know, through uh, you know his own charitable efforts. Uh, Kevin Durant had a huge, you know, charitable donation not too long ago. And again, a lot of the news around even big names like that is, oh, they're being fined for yelling at a referee. They got a technical foul. You know, they're going to be suspended or whatever it might be. And so I just wanted to explore the entire issue. And I saw really two feelings. One, there was like legit animosity on behalf of the players because the system is very quick, it's speedy, and it's it's uh, kind of closed off. So they're they're not happy about that. But then, you know, curiosity-wise was the second uh, real main feeling because they have all sorts of questions just like even guys like you and me would have in terms of where does the money go and if they get fined a big amount, is there any way they can take that amount and put it towards their own favorite charity? And so as I was digging, uh, you know, essentially what you find is the NBA system is tricky because the league acts as basically the prosecutors, the judge and the bank teller. In other words, they're saying you broke this rule. They're determining how much the fine is going to be. And then they're actually taking the money straight out of your paycheck. And of course, that's going to bother you, uh, even if you have the ability to defend yourself with the help of the union lawyers, as all players do. It's just frustrating to watch that money go out. And the NBA is also very secretive about where their half of the the money goes, Danny, because they don't want to show bias towards some of their charitable causes versus others. Uh, So they're always very kind of quiet and buttoned down about where their half goes. So what the union has done is they really tried to be more transparent towards the players and really more responsive towards the players in, in terms of seeking out you know potential charitable causes. So one example is like Flint, Michigan. Obviously, there was a water crisis there. Lots of players uh, are from that area, uh, notably JaVale McGee. The Detroit Pistons play not too far away. And so the, the union is just getting inundated with requests for how can we you know help this area. And one major re- way they can do that is just to divert some of that fine money to charitable causes 
in Flint, Michigan. So, for example, they are giving out coupons so that people can get free vegetables at a local farmer's market. There's not a single major grocery store in Flint, Michigan right now. I mean, you would actually have to travel outside the city if you wanted to go to a grocery store to get normal produce. And so what they're able to do is, okay, support this farmer's market, give families that need coupons to just get free uh, you know, vegetables, lettuce, whatever it might be, so they can eat a healthy diet, kind of counteract the effects of lead poisoning. Uh, and then, you know, over the last two years, basically people have cashed in more than $150,000 worth of coupons at that farmer's market. And that's a significant amount of money. That's a lot of food. Uh, and it's all coming from MBA fine money. So uh, to me, the, the most fascinating part was the scale. Every single year, MBA players are fined uh, at this point, roughly $2.5 million to $3 million for the union's half. So that means between $5 million and $6 million total every year. A lot of that's coming from suspensions. You know, if you miss a game check and you're making a uh, max money, you know, that could be a $100,000 fine right there. Uh, but there's actually a pot of basically between five and six million dollars going to charity spread out between the NBA and the National Basketball Players Association every single year just based off of fine money. And, you know, one of the major causes, like I mentioned, is that Flint uh, initiative. But they also set up, you know, matching programs. So if you're a player like Isaiah Thomas uh, and you're from the Seattle area and you want to, you know, get a new air conditioning unit uh, at your Boys and Girls Club, you can go to the union, you can apply, have the Boys and Girls Club apply for a grant. And if you don't $25,000 to the Boys and Girls Club, the union will match that. All of a sudden, they have $50,000 now available to upgrade their facility. So they're doing, I guess, programs in large ways, like the Flint thing, but also in smaller ways, more local ways to kind of support players' own initiatives. And you put all of that together, and you wind up having quite a bit of giving that really never gets talked about. And that was sort of the, the point of the piece is like, look, you know, these guys are breaking the rules, right? But a lot of them are pretty conscientious, community-minded players. You know, even Chris Paul will scream at a referee, right? But we know about his track record of philanthropy. W- what happens when their transition, uh, trans, uh, transgressions uh, finally are meted out and the money is finally being paid? And what winds up happening is actually a lot of good for a lot of communities around the country. Yeah, it really is impressive. And you had other ones, including like Kristaps Porzingis doing some basketball courts in Latvia, which I thought was cool. And and I, I think that there also could be, I'm this is instinctive, I don't have any reference from this from the PA, is maybe the piece will actually raise some awareness in terms of the players themselves and like the matching idea and all that. I'm sure it's in some sort of booklets and all that kind of stuff, but maybe it's not as ever present as it could be. And then the other important part to consider here, which you laid out in the piece, is that the you know, let's say 3 million or so that the players association has, not only is that half of the player input pot, but the player input pot is only one of the ones that the league has in terms of fine money, because the league also not sharing with the PA for obvious reasons, has the fine money from coaches, executives and referees. And we, as far as I know, we don't have a clear cut unless somebody has a better database. I don't have one. In terms of that, that's a lot of money too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the total fine money, especially when you throw in guys like Mark Cuban, you know, if you're expanding everything, you know, it's probably closer to at least like seven million. Right. And Uh, and magic, too. Oh, yeah. Great, great point. So, you know, this year it could be even higher. And that was the fascinating part to me, because I was expecting a situation where, you know, if this is your job, you're 
your money is relying upon these fines coming in. I was picturing somebody in a cubicle who was like fist pumping every time Draymond got fined because they knew that they would have more money uh, to be able to spend on their charitable causes because they're basically reliant upon player misbehavior to stay you know, in a position where they can do giving, right? But really, when you zoom out from that, the money is so consistent. Players are getting fined so regularly. There's so many different things they can get fined for that they can pretty much count on a steady source of income every single year. And it's large enough where they're able to take on these really big projects. You know, another big one is like resurfacing basketball courts in L.A. You know, they made a $150,000 donation during All-Star Weekend to do that spread out over three years. That's, again, a ton of money. Uh, and they know they're going to have that money over these next couple of years because the fine money is is just so steady. You know, one other thing I wanted to to bring up with you, Danny, and I, I don't know if you, you picked up on this, was the union lawyer, Gary Coleman, suggesting that the NBA should have a different fine procedure that rather than initiating the fine calls and the determinations and the rulings the morning after an incident so that they can get in whatever suspension or whatever fine would be happening prior to that next game, what Gary Coleman is proposing is that the NBA takes a page out of Major League Baseball's book and have a stay provision where essentially like everything gets put on hold for a couple of days so that the union could gather more facts. Maybe they could interview fans who were involved in the incident. Maybe they could in- interview other coaches, whoever else was around uh, uh, a specific uh, on-court incident to help bolster the player's defense and uh, to kind of maybe help influence a more fair punishment. And one example he actually brought up to me was the Draymond Green punch to LeBron James. And if you think about it, you know, during the finals, if there was a stay provision in place for that, Draymond potentially plays in game five, the Warriors potentially win that series if Draymond plays in game five, right? And so what he's saying is that, uh, you know, for some of these, especially the hot button incidents where maybe there's fights involved or there's an interaction between a player and a referee or interaction between a player and a fan where in the past, maybe the player's voice really isn't always heard because the NBA is obviously image conscious and they want to be seen as, you know, kind of cracking down on, on misbehavior and keeping things clean. I mean, after all, that's their job, right? What he was kind of arguing is we should have a more deliberate approach that would be more fair. It would present the players potentially in a better light uh, if these decisions weren't made quickly and sort of emotionally. Uh, And in the case of Draymond Green, a state provision potentially could have changed NBA history. I broadly support that sort of an idea. I think that getting more information is a good thing. And especially in the case of these more minor things, there isn't as much of a time pressure because being suspended for the next game versus being suspended for a game doesn't really, it makes a difference. Obviously it makes a difference to that team and whatever the shift is, but you assume all those things, you know, wash out in the end, they even out to a point. There are two different elements that I would be a little bit more concerned about. One is the idea I, I would kind of have a have a clause in there for the bigger incidents like if if we know that it's going to be a, a long suspension like let's say heaven forbid there's another malice at the palace or something like that where if we damn well know that that guy's going to get at least four or five games then maybe you started earlier and then the investigation can can be a part of it especially if it's contact that's so it's conduct that's so egregious the other one is actually the Draymond Green incident brings this to light is I would be more reluctant to delay in the playoffs for two reasons. One is the incentive structure completely changes because the idea of one game being different for being the same as another game is absolutely not true. And the second being 
that since you change opponents so quickly, if the team moves on, I think it would be unfair if, let's say, uh, the one I'm thinking of is J.R. Smith hitting Jay Crowder in the face, like that one a couple years ago. It would be totally unfair if the stay provision shifted J.R.'s suspension away from the Celtics series and into another series because it was Jay Crowder that got hit in the face. There's no question about it. And I think the league's counter would be along those same lines. They, they could even take a harder line and be like, look, this would just encourage more bad behavior because guys would just uh, rely on the stay to kind of save them. Just right? maul each other in game six of the finals and be like, okay, it's not going to happen in game seven. <laughs> you know, like exactly. that sort of a thing. I just think it's it's kind of an interesting concept because right. we don't hear the player's side of the story. And that's why I talked to Matt Barnes because Matt Barnes was like, you know, we hear about these phone calls guys go through all the time. Like, oh yeah, you know, the league security called and, you know, you get a chance to sort of present, you know, why you were so upset and why you were frustrated with the official. But from the player's side of it, it's like, look, these guys are, you know, this is what Matt Barnes told me he's like they've already decided what they're going to do the calls don't matter I mean that is the sensation and the feeling that he has and you know we live in America we like the idea of due process and fairness and you know having you know something that we can count on in terms of the procedure you know reaching uh, a a, kind of an end point that everyone can agree is acceptable right and I think what gets lost in this conversation a lot uh, just you know in the daily kind of routine nature of fines and uh, suspensions and all that is that in some cases players really feel like they have a legitimate beef against uh, the league's ruling and they don't necessarily feel like they have uh, the best mechanisms to challenge it and there are things in place you know that they can uh, if a fine is over fifty thousand dollars they they're able to file a grievance and have you know an independent arbitrator kind of take a look at it and in some cases that will help bring uh, the fine money down a little bit. Uh, but in the case of like playoff suspensions, I mean, time is of the essence. And if you feel like the NBA was acting unjustly towards you and operating on incomplete information and they still suspend you, you're really going to have a grudge against the league in the entire procedure involved there. And I, that's why I think it's just important to kind of get their side of the story and, and get their thoughts out there publicly so that it is part of the discussion. Because, you know, we all know, I mean, some of the complaints these guys raise about the referees are not necessarily made in good faith. I mean, when Draymond Green says the NBA needs to fire every single ref and get a whole new crop, you know, we, we can't give put that on the same sort of intellectual uh, plane as, you know, some of these comments about, well, maybe there needs to be more due process in the punishment structure. I mean, those are two different kinds of uh, ideas that we need to be weighing, but it's important to cut through some of the noise so that we can hear the legitimate gripes these guys have with the system. And, you know, frankly, when you step back and you realize the the power that the NBA has in this situation and how quickly it all comes down, uh, I did feel a little bit of sympathy for the players and their attorneys because, like, how good of a defense can you mount if you get to have one quick phone call with the guy, you don't have any chance to, you know, to uh, acquire evidence in the case, and then you have no uh, real ability to appeal in the short term. In, in the case of a Draymond Green, you're just suspended from Game 5, period. You don't have, you know, any other chance to, to push back on that. Uh, that is a tough position to be in. It is a tough position to be in. And another element of this that I think the Refs Association would absolutely hate, but I would be open to, is some sort of mitigation provision. It wouldn't be the whole amount, but a small portion of it or the technicals. If the underlying foul or like, you know, infraction or whatever was incorrectly called. Because to me, it's very different. I I think it would create the most interesting incentives if, you know, if a guy gets mad because an impactful call was mistakenly made, I think that's a much more genuine criticism than if it's on a legit call. Granted, you, that, that's why I said it's mitigation, not elimination, because obviously the penalty should still exist. And guys, oftentimes the response is overwhelming compared to the, 
grievousness of the infraction that they the the injustice they suffered but i don't know i think something like that just to acknowledge also that hey it's because sometimes it's really unfair like a guy gets a tech because a ref blew a call and i'm sympathetic in certain circumstances even though they overreact absolutely and one other thing i had in that piece was gary coleman and the union lawyers they track technical fouls by which official gives the technical foul to which player so that if there's a situation where this is like the seventh time this official has given a technical to this player and they want to sort of appeal that or they want to kind of push back during that phone call with the nba about the discipline they can say look this player is being unfairly targeted he's got seven uh, technical fouls from this one official and no other official has given him more than two technical fouls clearly it's something personal here and that has been, you know, the type of information that has influenced decisions in the past, according to the the union lawyers. But your idea is even better. Not only do we track whether it's the official towards a player, it's the official, and did they get the original original call correctly? Because then you could potentially have a situation where official X is is making mistakes regularly and is provoking this player who they have maybe a history with, it's much more likely a player would get frustrated with an official over a blown call if that same official had previously blown calls and given them technical fouls for it in the past. And so you could just kind of track, again, to defend the player's uh, response, look, this referee is consistently making mistakes. That's why this player is consistently uh, having outbursts. I mean, that would be, to me, very compelling if I was the judge uh, in those scenarios and saying, look, like, you know, we kind of understand where the player is coming from here. No, he shouldn't have screamed profanities on national television, but there were kind of triggering events here in the past that led him to do it. I think that, you know, the union, you know, if I'm in their shoes, I would be tracking not just who's handing out the technicals, but exactly where the technicals coming from. And if they're missed calls, making sure they know which referees are missing those calls to kind of lead to those kinds of confrontations. And I'm not saying all that information needs to be made public. They can just do what they do now and say, this is the fine amount and or rescinded technical or whatever. They don't have to say why. They don't owe that to us. I think they owe it to the players. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think the burden in this case would fall on the union rather than the NBA to do that. Although the NBA might want to be doing that as well. And maybe they are. And, and maybe it doesn't need to be made public. And it's probably better for everyone that that part doesn't get made public. But certainly, if you're having that private conversation with, you know, between the union lawyers and like, you know, the NBA league office and there is a past precedent, it shouldn't just apply to the player because right now past precedent does factor in. You know, if you're a repeat offender, quote unquote, you get fined by and large, larger amounts of money for each subsequent um uh, infraction, even if they're minor infractions. Uh, and that's been the case for years and years and years, dating back to the David Stern era. If there's referees who are also you know, involved repeatedly in these kinds of situations, that should factor into the player's benefit, not just count against them. Yeah, I, th- I think we're in agreement. Anything else you feel like we need to discuss? Uh, no, I don't think so, Danny. I appreciate you letting me talk about that piece. You know, I realize it, it is kind of complex and information heavy, so I just encourage people to go read it if you get a chance. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely. on SI.com right now. It's not always easy to talk about like the intricacies of employee matching programs and, uh, and large scare charitable donations and, and how that all works, but uh, I tried to cram it full with you know every piece of information you could possibly want to know about what the NBA Players Association does with the money their players are being fined with. And I thought Matt Barnes had lots of very candid, uh, interesting things to say about the whole process. And sometimes, uh, you know, when there's uh, a process is sort of like kind of kept behind closed doors or like kept in the curtains, the best thing you can do is go to the guy who's got a lot of experience with it. And that's what I try to do with Matt Barnes. And uh, hopefully people will uh, be interested in what he had to say. Yeah, and I, I think as somebody who this was in the wheelhouse because it was a lot about how the mechanics work and a topic that I didn't know, 
I think it fits with me. And generally speaking, I think listeners of this show have have referenced that. I really did enjoy it. And looking forward to what is going to be an intensely fun April. I, I haven't looked forward to an April in basketball purposes for this like, like this in a long time because there's uncertainty not only once the playoffs start, but these next two weeks are going to be really important. Absolutely. There, there's no doubt. And I think we're through the worst maybe of the of the tanking stuff too. I mean, yes, it's going to kind of take, uh, you know, keep going on here for the next couple of weeks. But I think in terms of like a, a conversation starter, to me, I would always rather talk playoff matchups and, you know, big storylines like Philly, like we talked about, or Steph Curry's injury. I mean, that's always so much more interesting than kind of pointing and laughing at the New York Knicks and the Orlando Magics of the world. So I share your enthusiasm with April around the corner, and uh, I hope we can talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at Sports Illustrated. If you're interested in the fine piece, you should absolutely read it as he brought up at the end. It is a great medium for that sort of idea. And I think we did a good job of getting through a lot of the big areas, but there's some details and things that I think you would really enjoy. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on and the perspective. Ben and I are always free agent and off-season interested, and we couldn't help ourselves from getting into some of the Paul George stuff, which I'm still working my head around part of it, but I, I, I do really enjoy it. And lots coming up. No, I'm going to do a podcast in the near term on the NCAA tournament with Sam talking about where everything went and everything like that, and then do something else before the playoff started. And then I try to balance this with Dunked On, the podcast I do with Nate Duncan, and not have them overlap too much. I used to do more of more playoff preview type stuff with Real Jam Radio. This year, I might not do that as much. You know, trying to get a balance. If you have any input on that, just like anything else, good, bad, or indifferent, DannyLaRueNBA at gmail.com is the best way to do it. Gotten some useful responses over the last little while and some positive ones as well. And I, I really do appreciate that. And I always try to do it because I know a lot of people listen to this, listen to Dunked On, and it's me both times. And, you know, obviously Nate is different from a guest that I would have on this show in terms of their own thoughts and opinions, but I try to kind of keep it a little bit different. So that will be coming up in the near term. Plenty of good content on the way. If you want to support this show, lots of things you can do to help. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player we're choosing. It is great if it's iTunes. They are still such a big deal in our business. If you want to be really supportive, even if it's not your podcast player like mine, I, I use Overcast. I absolutely love Overcast. You can still go into iTunes and give a rating and it, it really does help. And really the goal of a lot of this kind of stuff is just helping people find the show. So leaving a rating, leaving a review, subscribing, downloading every episode, what those things do is they, they push this or any other podcast up in the ratings and that allows more people to find it. All along those same lines, word of mouth, always important. And with Real Gym Radio, I still get people all the time to go, oh, will you do a different podcast? It's not just the stuff with Nate. And it's like, yeah, this actually dunked on, started bef- started as as a technical matter, as an offshoot of this. We were actually in the same iTunes feed for a couple weeks. And the other big thing you can do to support the show is checking out our sponsors, BetDSI, MadGM promo code. You can bet on the NCAA tournament. You get a $25 tournament bet just for registering. And then using that MadGM promo code, a 200% member bonus on your first deposit. Way to add certainly intrigue for the remaining games in the NCAA tournament. You can hopefully you like it enough that you'll keep going with it moving forward. True Car, great way to buy a new and used car. And then the You're Welcome podcast with Chael Sonnen. You can check that out as well. And of course, you can check out my own work. 
this writing. I've had a couple pieces for Real GM recently in the CBA Encyclopedia. I wrote on Hardship was the most recent one. And then The Athletic, I'm doing a ton of material for them. Wrote a piece for The Athletic Chicago today. Have stuff coming out for the Bay Area one all the time. And then stuff for the national one. There isn't a full NBA vertical at this point. A lot of it is my stuff, but doing doing fun material there. And then in the process of starting to work on my off-season previews, which are going to be massive and fun, and it's a big undertaking, but so be it. And of course, Dunked On Twitter NBA show will be back next week. The tentative plan right now is to do Warriors Thunder, which should be a fun game. Steph Curry obviously won't be playing, but it'll still be plenty interesting. And the Duncan Oru Patreon that Nate and I do, special content there as well. That is enough hyping of my own stuff. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. I love talking with Ben. And we'll be back next week. I don't know the exact timing because I never do. So that's why you subscribe and download. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.